Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Before we get started, I want to let you know we'll be discussing body image, eating disorders, and suicide. There's research showing that exposure to details about eating disorders can contribute to symptoms. So if you find those topics triggering, please take care or just skip this one. What do you think is the biggest issue or the most difficult issue to tackle in the world of ballet? Fat phobia. 100%. I firmly believe that ballet culture in general will compromise on basically everything else before it compromises on the body ideal. Chloe Angel is a journalist, and she's interviewed dozens of dancers about what happens in the classroom. She wrote a book called Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself. In her book... Chloe explores an idea dancers of any generation will recognize. It's this concept of the line. Dancers talk about lines, or their line, or the line, all the time. It can mean slightly different things in different contexts. But basically, from outstretched fingertip to pointed toe, dancers strive for a long, slender shape with their body, uninterrupted by what are seen as extraneous angles or curves. I'm curious what you think of the idea of the dancer's line and what is, <laughs> what, <laughs> why does that make you laugh? <laughs> um, because so much harm has been done in the name of the line. And it came up all the time when I was reporting Turning Point, mostly in young people who had been told they needed to work on their lines, which is usually code for you need to lose weight. They just can't say it out loud anymore. So many people have been encouraged to starve themselves and done so. So many people have shoved their feet under couches so that they can get the foot arch that they know they're supposed to have. 
so many people have developed a really dysfunctional relationship with exercise and with food simply because most people in the ballet world are more interested in their experience of watching it than in the dancer's experience of executing it. You're there to see the movement be executed in, and I'm going to start using problematic words that I can unpack in a little bit, in the cleanest, purest, most undistracting way possible. Breasts are unclean, butts are impure, and hips are distracting. That's the way we talk about lines. Clean lines, long lines, pure movement. Which implies that people who are not incredibly slender with a prepubescent body for girls and women, not for boys, they're allowed to hit puberty and become men. People who don't look like that are somehow unclean, impure, and distracting. And it's incredibly damaging and it's incredibly pervasive. And a lot of those assumptions never get unpacked, never get made explicit. And I mean, that stays with you forever. If you don't unpack it, if you don't face it, if you don't think about what it really means, it's, that shit stays with you forever. Ballerinas starving themselves is practically a tired trope at this point. Everyone's heard about it. Everyone agrees it's not healthy. Dancers have pushed for change in how their bodies are discussed and considered. But that's why, in a way, it's so surprising it's still a prevalent problem. And it's kind of a mystery exactly where and how this standard unfurled itself and crept its way into the back of almost every ballet dancer's mind. As I spoke with Chloe, I wanted to understand where these strict standards came from. It's a complicated question. There's definitely not one person or one company who decided it had to be this way. Ballet evolved over the course of centuries as it moved from France to Russia to America. And there are many people who have nourished and spread the thin ideal in ballet. Sometimes I almost wonder if it's a force that at times has taken on a life of its own, powered by culture and implicit social pressures, like a weed you can't get rid of. At the same time, there are some people who had more influence on the culture of ballet than others. Balanchine reshaped American ballet. He is understood to be the father of American ballet. That's what they call him. And he was not the first person to bring ballet to America. He was not the first person to try and impose his vision of ballet on America, but his stuck. Why do you say that? One of the things that he modeled in his company in New York City Ballet was the unquestionable, all-powerful artistic director boss. They loved him. They worshipped him. They desired his approval and his affection. And that model is so damaging. It is so ripe for abuse and mistreatment and a general feeling of powerlessness in the workplace and obedience to hierarchical authority that did not begin with him as he became sort of synonymous with American ballet. Lots of people replicated because it, quote, worked. And the other thing that he left us with is his bodily ideal, particularly for women dancers, and that is long legs, long neck, long, thin, everything 
that is part of his legacy. From iHeart Podcasts and Rococo Punch, this is The Turning, Room of Mirrors. I'm Erica Lance. Part 7. The Line. As toxic and coded as invoking the line can be, when I watch a Balanchine ballet, I'm overcome by beauty. And I find it hard to divorce the line from what makes it beautiful. Like in Balanchine's Tchaikovsky Pas de Deux, a lonely violin's bittersweet melody is embodied by a dancer and her partner. The ballerina flits across the stage. She takes her partner's hand gently, and he lifts her over his head while she extends one leg in the air like a thin arrow. Then she reverses direction mid-air. She stretches her legs apart so they're almost parallel to the floor. Her arms lift to a delicate V, like the outline of a swan's outstretched wings. She's floating. It draws me in. And it did the same thing for Sophie Flack the first time she saw it. It seemed like it was almost ridiculous how big she was moving. It was like almost funny. Sophie Flack saw Balanchine's choreography for the first time in the mid-1990s. She was around 10 years old. Balanchine had been long gone from New York City Ballet. He died a decade earlier. But Sophie found herself in a ballet class, huddled in front of a TV screen next to her peers, watching a woman who'd been molded by Balanchine himself. The woman was Patricia McBride, and she was dancing the Tchaikovsky Pas de Deux. And I, I literally... I was floored. I remember at some point I saw something with a corps de ballet. The corps de ballet is a group of dancers that typically serves as a backdrop to the soloists. But in Balanchine ballets, the corps is often more active and focal in a piece. You might have dozens of dancers move in unison, dashing across the stage in speedy twirls or dramatic jumps. And I was like, oh my God, that looks so fun. Like, it all just looks so fun. I think for me, it was the music, the way you become the music. As George Balanchine once said, see the music, hear the dance. Catherine Morgan also discovered Balanchine when she was about 10. It was when she saw the New York City Ballet perform The Nutcracker. Like Sophie, Catherine fell in love with the excitement and the dynamic movement she was seeing from all the dancers on the stage. I remember walking out of there and going, I'm going to be up there one day. That's where I want to dance. I came home and I was like, I want to dance in New York City Ballet. I want to dance Balanchine. And then my mom did the research. Catherine and Sophie both started to dream about entering Balanchine's world one day. These two young girls, a few years apart, each started to work on that goal. One in Massachusetts, the other in Alabama. As they rose through ballet school levels, they each got acquainted with the language and the ways of ballet. How to tie a bun in their hair, how to point their toes. And along with that, they began to learn about expectations for their bodies. Because I was never the smallest one, you know, teachers who were trying to be helpful would pull me aside and be like, you know, you're talented enough for this, but you're always going to have to watch your weight. 
you're going to have to be careful. You're not the thinnest one. So you're going to have to work twice as hard because you're not skinny. You just need to be careful. At like 12, 13, 14, it was always a thing in the back of my head that was put there. I remember thinking, well, I'm not worth anything until I'm skinny. I mean, also, you're just, I feel like groomed is a very charged word, but I don't know what else to use. But like groomed to accept like a very specific ideal from a very young age. So it's not even really something you have to talk about a lot. It's like your front should be completely flat with your hips and your stomach and your chest. If there's something jutting out, it ruins the line. I remember people talking about my body. Like there was a physical therapist I saw regularly just sort of like to check that I was developing well as a dancer. And my mother asked like if she thought that I had like a appropriate body for ballet, like in front of me. And she was like, yes, it's like ideal or something. And my mom was like, do you think like it will change over time, like with puberty? And the woman was like, no, I think like if, you know, her thighs aren't overdeveloped now, like it would probably just stay that way. Like they were talking about me as if I wasn't there. (laughs) So, I mean, that messaging is like, okay, my thighs like can't get bigger, basically. How old do you think you were then? Oh, you know, under 10 for sure. You were under 10 and they're like talking about the size of your thighs. Yeah. Catherine and Sophie both still aimed to dance Balanchine's choreography. So on their own timelines, they each auditioned for the School of American Ballet, the feeder school to the ballet company founded by Balanchine. I also remember at the SAB audition, School of American Ballet, this particular one, before we did anything, the teacher went around and checked our feet. So we each had to point our foot so she could see what our arches were like. So it just shows, like, if you have a really pretty foot, it's good for ballet. Catherine had been to so many auditions for ballet schools that they all seemed to blend together. But she says very close examination of the body was part of it. When you show up for an audition, they'll look at the parents. Because they'll go, what is this kid going to turn into? What are the genetics? Oh, well, her mom's a little bit curvy, so we'll have to see what happens with that. Oh, well, her mom has hips. My mom remembers at many auditions being given the full body scan to see what I was going to turn into. And funnily enough, I'm adopted, so it's irrelevant. So in their auditions, both Catherine and Sophie were evaluated. And they both got into the School of American Ballet. SAB for short. About 2,000 had auditioned. Just a couple hundred made it. So my mom and I made plans with my father, and that's when we decided that she would move up with me because she didn't want her 15-year-old Southern girl, because I was from Alabama, staying in the dorms by herself in New York City. That would not have gone well. Um, I would have been just lost in a hole somewhere, (laughs) honestly. Unlike Catherine, Sophie left her family and moved into the dorms, three floors in a New York high-rise, just below the Juilliard dorm. An elevator ride down from the kids' dorm rooms was the studio, and then the cafeteria was on the bottom floor. So your whole world is in this one building. 
you had to check in and out by writing your name and the time. And you had like a certain amount of time, I think, that you had, you could be out before coming back. In the lounge, we would watch Sex in the City. The person at the desk would like throw a movie night or something once a week where you'd have like all this junk food laid out. And we would use the stairs for exercise, for burning calories. We'd run up and down them. We got really competitive about burning calories. In between ballet classes, Sophie went to professional children's school in New York. It's a school for kids pursuing careers like actors, dancers, musicians. A lot of movie stars go there. Each day, Sophie would have to hurry back for ballet class. We're literally running along Columbus Avenue racing the other girls in my class to get a good spot near the teacher or at the skinny mirror. And then we'd go back again for another class and like our meals were eaten while walking. And I remember noting to myself, I am doing this. Like, I'm going to give it my all or I'm going to go home. Like that kind of thing. I really worked hard. Every day when Sophie went down to the SAB studios, she passed a giant bust of Balanchine. It reminded her who this was all for. What you're doing is larger than yourself, almost like a religion. Like, this is bigger than you. I was serving something larger than myself. If it's not God, then it's the art form or Balanchine. For me, it felt like it's like Balanchine's ghost or something. Balanchine's ghost loomed large at SAB. But to progress, Sophie and Catherine had to grab the attention of a mortal man, the head of the New York City Ballet, who had final say in their futures. The artistic director of the company at the time, Peter Martins. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When Sophie Flack was a teenager at SAB, It was still years before an internal investigation would take place, and Peter Martins would resign. To Sophie, all that mattered was if Peter liked her. He held a lot of power, but it also was very apparent in his body. Just the way that he moved through space and the way he regarded people. He spoke with this light, sophisticated Danish accent. He was quite tall, sort of like ramrod posture. So when you enter a room, it's not just like a pedestrian walking into a room. You're making an entrance. He seemed very aware of his presence. He was like a figure, not a person. Later, when Sophie was in the company, she says dancers would point out the cameras that monitored the stage and joke there were cameras everywhere with a live feed to Peter's office. It felt like he was always watching like you were always on display. He never spoke to us. He had like a very small circle of people who he seemed to know or gab with a little bit that seemed sort of like on the inside or like knew a secret that no one else knew. I didn't quite understand how one gained entry to that very small social circle. They definitely existed on a higher plane, I'll just say that. And like... You know, we're in charge of our everything, our lives, our roles, validation, uh, you know, everything. Sophie knew she had to please Peter's inner circle, but ultimately, Peter made all the decisions about who would join the company. He would observe class at the school and occasionally teach, which was terrifying. The balancing technique is like the whole idea was to push yourself off balance to reach beyond what you thought you could. So there's never quite an end to it. Sophie worked harder than she ever had, but it wasn't enough to execute a certain number of fuates or drill hundreds of perfectly formed tendus. To gain entry into that inner world, she felt she'd have to do something more. 
I think I started developing like an eating disorder actually when I was about 12 because I started developing breasts and I didn't want to because I was concerned they were too big for the company. Sophie wanted to look like a Balanchine dancer. She had four tapes of Balanchine repertoire. She watched them on repeat. She studied the movement and the dancers. And she noticed a pattern. Everybody was completely flat-chested in the videos that I was watching. I'm not talking about, like, small boobs. I'm talking about, like, like almost like a man. And then I started getting, like, little boobs. And they just kept getting a little bigger. Like, I... And I, that was not okay. And like the only way I knew how to control it was through diet. So yeah, you definitely aren't allowed to grow up. You know, with women in ballet, when they naturally become what they're supposed to become, which is a woman, it's like, you know, oh, she's getting hips. Oh, she's starting to look like a woman. Oh, she's, you know, and you're like, um, that's what's supposed to happen. Whereas with men, it's the opposite. Oh, he's so scrawny. Oh, he's becoming a man. Finally, he looks like a man. And for us, it's the flip side. They want us to stay looking prepubescent. Yeah, it's weird that the look they're going for is a grown man Mm -hmm. partnering, dancing with... A child. A child, a young girl. Mm -hmm. So when Sophie was about 15, she even saw a surgeon about her body. She hoped her breasts could be reduced. They didn't have enough fat in my boobs to like reduce them um and so he's he was like well you could just lose weight sort of nonchalantly and I put myself on a diet after that it took over me it got out of control after all of the years of pressure to be thin something started to happen to Sophie where her eating behaviors took on a life of their own it was like a force beyond her control a force she couldn't stop While recovering from an injury, Sophie says she lost a lot of weight in a short amount of time. I got a lot of praise from the boys in the school, in, you know, partnering class. To the school's credit, Sophie says her teachers pulled her aside because they were concerned about her weight loss. They referred her to a nutritionist. Which I saw, which I basically laughed off. I remember she said I had to eat 2,500 calories a day, and I literally laughed when she said that because I was sustaining myself on so little. That amount seemed ridiculous. Instead of talking myself out of eating in my technique, which I won't share, I made myself eat like one bad food a day. And after the intervention, I bought a muffin from the bake sale at my school. It was a mini muffin, and I was really proud of myself. I ate half of it. I couldn't eat the other half. I I was scared for myself. I don't want to underplay the severity of this. Eating disorders can lead to heart failure, neurological problems, structural brain changes like the brain shrinking in size, intense emotional turmoil, and death. Anorexia is the most lethal mental health condition there is. It has suicide rates 60 times that of the general population. That's also higher than for depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. But from Sophie's perspective, being thin would help her achieve her goal. I got a ton of attention from Peter Martins that year. 
I remember him holding my hand as I demonstrated it in the front of the room. I felt like I had a real shot at being in the company. It seemed to be a good thing. But the problem was I didn't know how to maintain it. I only knew how to keep going. I never learned how to eat properly at all. It was like binging or extra dieting. One day, a ballet mistress, the person who led company rehearsals, pulled Sophie and a couple other students into an office. She closed the door and there was like three of us in the room or something. And she said, so you probably know you've been accepted. She said, Peter would like you to join as an apprentice. That's the first step towards gaining a permanent position in the company. It was almost like I should have known it. The way she said it, the way she spoke was in the <laughs> the speak of the theater, basically. Like, nothing was direct ever or explicit. Every kind of communication was like sort of an afterthought, and it was sort of a power that they held over us. Maybe Sophie didn't get the praise or warmth she'd craved, but at least she was going to be an apprentice. At age 17, she'd given everything, her family, her home, her body, to this cause, and she'd been accepted. Like Sophie, Catherine Morgan was also 17 years old when she got her apprenticeship with the New York City Ballet. An apprenticeship is a huge deal, but it's still nerve-wracking because there's no guarantee you'll become a full-time hire at the end of the year. It could be the end of the road after years of work. So two weeks in, we're in company class. I'm doing Swan Lake rehearsals. I'm Swan number 17 on the left. You know, nobody. And one of the principal dancers tears her calf muscle in class and literally falls, has to be carried out of the room. It was very scary. A few days later, Peter Martin shows up to teach class. And whenever the director teaches, it's sort of a mini audition because the director doesn't always teach, especially Peter. He wouldn't teach weekly. He would just show up on the schedule. And so when Peter Martin shows up on the schedule, the entire company is there. <laughs> so you're in this room of like 90-something people. And I remember just not being able to do anything that day. Like I fell out of every turn I couldn't stay balanced to save my life because I was still a baby. I had been in the company maybe a week at this point. And I thought any moment I could be fired. Any moment. After rehearsal, the ballet mistress beckoned Catherine over with a curled finger. Catherine froze. She was like, Sean wants to talk to you. Sean was like number two in command to Peter. And he comes over and he says, so as you know, a couple days ago, the principal got hurt. And I was like, uh-huh. And he said, you know, well, she's supposed to dance Juliet in Saratoga. Uh-huh. Well, we'd very much like for you to replace her. And it was one of those like, are, are, you, are you talking to me? Did you see the rehearsal I just had? <laughs> Did you see me fall on my face? She'd just been given the part of Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. And then Peter comes running over like, Did you tell her? Did you tell her? Catherine was the only apprentice who was being asked to perform this type of solo role. She was being singled out. It could be that moment when she would turn into a star. Opening day finally came. It was held in an outdoor amphitheater in Saratoga, New York, 
where the New York City Ballet performs every year. It's the company's summer residency where Peter Martins tries dancers in different roles and makes some of the critical decisions on which dancers will make it. I remember being really nervous because this was sort of do or die for me. The stage wings were full of company dancers waiting to see how she would do. I just remember doing my turn and all of a sudden seeing blood on my costume and thinking, oh dear, what happened? And then all of a sudden Tyler glaring at me, wiping blood off his nose. He's halfway saying as we're dancing, you whacked me in the face, but just keep going. But the people she needed to impress didn't seem to mind. Peter was pleased. And I remember one of the other ballet masters who was very difficult to please coming up to me going, that was, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. That's when I knew I had it. After that, Catherine quickly moved through the ranks, from core member to soloist, landing role after role. It's funny because Peter Martins told me exactly what it was. He, I know a lot of dancers had issues with him. He was nothing but lovely to me. I can't speak for anybody else, but he was always very encouraging and mentoring to me. He said, you know, You're not the technician, but you tell the story. You're the artist. Your artistry is going to give you a career. When Sophie, the other young dancer, joined the company, she was just focused on how grateful she was to be there. I felt like I just won the jackpot, you know, being accepted. I was very proud because I was very aware of the prestige of being a part of it. One day after rehearsal, the ballet mistress kept her late. You know, my heart stopped. I was, you know, really worried I was going to lose my job first. Because I was still a new core member. She told Sophie, Peter says he notices you've gained weight. It's what Sophie calls her first fat talk. A lot of professional dancers use the term fat talk because they're so common. As a soloist in the company, Catherine wasn't immune either. It's never, we need you to lose weight. Because... They can get in a lot of trouble saying that kind of stuff. So there's different phrases. You need to um, get in shape. Get in shape is the phrase that's code for lose weight. I don't think you're in your best shape. I think I said, I just got my period or something. And she took that to mean that I had gotten it for the first time recently. And I let her believe that, but I thought that was really interesting that at 19, she thought it was normal for a dancer to have her period for the first time. I mean, she's a woman. Like, she knows that around the time of your period, your body, you know, gets bloated, whatever. So she seemed to have some understanding. I didn't feel like it, I really didn't feel like it was coming from her, actually. She was the messenger. I don't blame her. It's like, I bet she didn't want to have those conversations. She might not have agreed, but that was her job. The same institution that had an intervention to address her severe eating disorder only a few years prior was now telling her she needed to lose weight. Everyone at the theater was very cold emotionally, so I didn't expect any warmth. I think I probably started crying. Um, and just sort of really worried. And that was the first thought, I think. Like, I'm screwing this up. This is, this is not good. 
Catherine Morgan, the dancer cast as Juliet, was 21 when she landed another major role. This time, Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. And Princess Aurora is not only the crown jewel role of ballet, but it is, in my opinion, the hardest one. It is the most technically demanding, the most physically demanding. You feel like you've run six marathons by the time you're done with this this ballet. And I remember all the other Auroras were like, oh, I lose like five pounds a show and I'm like so skinny and da, da, da. And I remember thinking, I'm kind of starting to gain weight doing this ballet. It's really odd. I just thought, okay, well, I don't lose five pounds a show. I have to like gain a pound a show. I hadn't changed my diet, but I started ballooning up And then I started to get really, really tired. And Peter Martins was doing a new ballet at the time, and we were in the studio eight hours a day choreographing this thing. And so I just thought, I don't have time to eat. I can't get through this ballet. Like, what is happening to me? And ballet masters had started pulling me aside going, are you aware that you are putting on weight? And I wanted to go, no, I had no idea. You know, it's my job to stare at myself in the mirror 24-7. But no, not a clue. Of course I was aware. And then I would go up to point or go up to to balance and my muscles would give out. So it was like my body was just starting to collapse. And I gained 45 pounds in six weeks, barely eating anything. And people were going, what is happening? Catherine says doctors were confused about her weight complaints. Even after the weight gain, she was in a normal weight range. But her standards as a ballerina were totally different. She couldn't fit into the costumes and she struggled to get through rehearsals. And she didn't know why. So eight doctors later and two years of battling this, I was so miserable. So finally I was cast as Hermia in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is one of the two lovers, as they say, in Midsummer. And Peter came to watch my rehearsal and he said nothing. And we, he said, Let, let's, go, let's go talk. So we went to his office, and he was just like, how are you feeling? And I lost it. I just burst into tears. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so ill and sick and huge and da-da-da. I said, Peter, I think I need to, like, not come back next year. I think I need to let my contract run out, go home, and get well. Because the pressure of trying to be in the New York City Ballet, and I was now a soloist by this point, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm on this hamster wheel of misery. And he just gave me a huge hug, and he was like, I knew you were smart. Put your health first. There will always be a place for you here. But in the ballet world, is health ever first? Catherine would have to make a choice. She went home to her parents' house, but things would never be the same again. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. 
It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors so you pay only what you owe you can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills to date HealthLock has helped its members save over 130 million dollars bottom line insurance alone isn't enough to save visit healthlock.com do it today before you see another health care provider that's healthlock.com Year after year, Sophie worked diligently as a corps de ballet ballerina. But as time wore on, she wanted more opportunities to stretch herself creatively. She kept being put in more traditional ballets when she craved something else. She wanted to dance Balanchine's angular, abstract works, the Stravinsky ballets, where movement and music ruled. What they referred to as the black and white ballets. Less story, more abstraction. She scheduled a meeting with Peter Martins to ask if she could study some of those roles. She might never perform them, but at least she could learn. Even like walking down the hallway to his office, you know, made you like stressed out. You know, it's like going to see the wizard, you know. Peter's office was like a relic. It's like a tiny built-in sofa that looked like it had been built in like the 70s and probably had been and old carpet. The whole theater was that way, like it hadn't been touched since Balanchine's era. Peter walked out from behind his desk. He was fairly warm and he came like physically closer to me and I felt heard and I, you know, was terrified and really nervous and stuff. But I said the things and he responded to it like, okay, like, why don't you come back with like some specific roles and ideas? And I felt very encouraged. But when the casting and rehearsal schedule for the next black and white ballet was posted, Sophie didn't make the list. I wasn't even called to understudy, as if we hadn't ever spoken. Then, in the economic downturn of 2009, there was buzz about a possible mass layoff. And there was a lot of anxiety. I didn't want to believe that it was true. One afternoon, Sophie was hanging out with her boyfriend on the Lower East Side, Sophie's stomping grounds on her days off. 
She was walking down the sidewalk when she got a call from Peter's personal assistant. She didn't say what it was. She just said, Peter would like to meet with you. And he, I never had a meeting where Peter called the meeting before. So I knew exactly what it was about. I knew that I was going to be laid off. And I literally fell to the pavement. I was just completely distraught. I felt like I'd just been diagnosed with some terminal illness. It felt like, you know, there was an end to the sidewalk, basically. I just remember cars going by, people going on with their lives, and this abyss that opened up before me. (laughs) It felt like facing death. I don't mean to be dramatic, but that's really what it felt like. I didn't know another way to live. I didn't know what was next at all. I didn't ever consider a life after dance. That's what we were sort of taught to do because how could you possibly give yourself completely if you're always looking ahead? They had the meeting. Peter stuck to his line. They didn't have the funds. Sophie danced several more months until her contract ran out. Which was really, really difficult. I would just sort of like went through the motions and did as little as possible. I was extremely upset and mad. It was hard to like look people in the eye. It was hard to like just navigate the day in the theater. I just wanted to stop, you know. People are surprised why I didn't want to continue dancing after all that. Why would I want to continue dancing? In the company or at all? At all. Sophie would never dance professionally again. She left the company with lots of questions. But there was one she couldn't ask, too afraid to make it explicit. Was it my body? You know, I blamed myself. I felt like a failure because I thought it was my fault. After Catherine Morgan left the company to focus on her health and these mysterious symptoms and weight gain she'd been experiencing, she went home to her parents' house in Alabama. She still felt tired all of the time. The symptoms hadn't subsided. Hair loss, weight gain, and still no answers. Part of your identity as a dancer is how you look in the mirror. And it's also how, what makes you feel good about yourself or not. It's what gets you roles or not. And usually, your job as a dancer is to be criticized, to fix it. Nope, your, your knee's not straight. Nope, point your feet. So you get into this mentality that everything is fixable. I just have to do my part. If it's not right, it's because I'm not doing it right. And she had no fix for the body she saw staring back at her in the mirror. My only definition of success was being a skinny ballerina on the stage of New York City Ballet. And so once that was taken from me, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. I lost completely who I was. I had no outside life. I felt totally worthless because it was my identity. I committed to it at 14, 15, and I knew nothing else. And this, I felt like, oh, I'm letting my younger self down because I sacrificed so much in my childhood to do this. You know, like I I didn't go to prom. I didn't go to high school graduation. I didn't go to sleepovers. I didn't get, you know, because I was so committed to this. And then to have it fall apart, I felt like I was letting myself down. One day, she stood at the top of her parents' stairs on the second floor, and a thought flew through her mind. 
I had that flash moment of what would happen if I just threw myself down this, the stairs and ended this. Cause it was, it was, I was so unhappy. There wasn't one thing that helped her get beyond the pain and depression or fill the void that ballet left in her life. She got a counselor, a dog, and finally a diagnosis. Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an autoimmune disease that affects the thyroid, which helped her manage her symptoms. But what really helped the most was distance. For nine years, she stayed away from the stage. So with ballet, I was literally in it 24-7 until my illness hit, and then I got out of the system for a long time. And then suddenly you're like, oh, hmm. I was able to see the kind of weird quirks of the ballet world that I had never seen before because I was just in it and didn't know of any other way. You hear from the people who are not in the professional ballet world. And I remember a couple of people being like, well, why? Why is it like that? And then you start to go, well, I don't know why. And it was being out of the professional company world for a while started me to question things. You start to realize that, oh, these people are brainwashed. What are the points of brainwashing that ballet dancers experience? That you have to starve and that you have to have a certain look to you. Another one is that you must push through an injury. I see so many dancers push through injuries because they are so terrified to say something because they don't want to get in trouble or they don't want to be deemed as lazy or they don't want to lose a spot. So many teachers, again, operate on scare tactic. And well, if you can't do it, someone else will. We have four more people in line. I'll put your understudy on. I I think it's also this thing of the person in the front of the room is the do or die dictator. The teacher, the director is literally God. And you must do what they say at all times without question. Even if the step is being taught wrong or the choreography is wrong, you're scared to speak up out of fear of your job. It's sometimes like, well, you know, you you should be grateful to be here. Be seen and not heard. So dancers have no say, no control. And really, it's a career based on other people's opinions, literally other people's opinions. And that's why it's so hard. It's not the Olympics that's decided by who ran the fastest. You know, it is 100% someone else's opinion. Which means then that you have to constantly please. Yep. Gradually, Catherine got back into the studio, this time on her own terms. Suddenly, when I wasn't trying to impress anybody, things started to work. That's when I could finally, like, dance again. And when she learned Miami City Ballet was looking for dancers, she auditioned. It was in her wheelhouse because the company was founded by a Balanchine dancer. They frequently perform his choreography. After four days of auditions, Catherine was offered a soloist position with the company. She was frank with the director. I'm never going to be the thinnest one in the room. And I was told, oh, well, don't worry about it. You look absolutely beautiful. We like that you're different. She thought maybe this time she wouldn't have to choose between health and ballet. Her first performance back was in a Balanchine ballet called Slaughter on 10th Avenue. Which was so much fun. I've never had more fun on stage. Um, You play a 1920s striptease girl. And you're, you know, it's just, it's just so much fun. Catherine was dancing every day. She'd reclaimed her identity. She had left the pain and disappointment behind. 
It felt amazing. But at half hour call to one of my shows, I was called in and I was the whole spiel again. You're not looking as you should. You're not in shape. Have a good show. It was became very apparent to me that it, the ballet world had not changed. So at that point, I was like, all right, I'm going to show them. Stupid. Went back to 17-year-old brain. After having worked through, you know, a decade of what I worked through, I stopped eating. And as you can imagine, that didn't go well. Three days later, I strained my calf muscle in a nutcracker rehearsal. Which can happen when you're underfed. Then I was very quickly taken out of every ballet I was learning for the rest of the season. And it just sort of spiraled and wasn't good. Then all of her old autoimmune condition symptoms flared up. The line that was said to me that I will never forget as long as I live. I know you're supposedly this inspiration to all these people, but I don't think you can be a true inspiration until you're back on the stage looking like a ballerina in point shoes. And I was just like, huh. At that point, I knew I was done. And she left. All the things that had been said to me, I was back in that place of I literally couldn't look at myself in the mirror. everybody. So I have a bit of a more serious video for you guys today, as you can probably tell. Rather than spiral again, she went public with her story on her YouTube channel. I kind of don't even know how I'm going to go about this, to be honest. It's a bit daunting to me. As you, a lot of you have done your research. The author we talked to earlier, Chloe Angel, heard about it. And it was a huge deal. I mean, she'd been out of professional ballet for years. And there was a lot of fanfare. There was a lot of publicity around it. And then they wouldn't put her on stage. To Chloe, it confirmed what she already knew. The problem runs deep. There is this suite of euphemisms and code words that is being delivered to dancers, and most of them understand what it means, but it's being couched in terms of health and length and getting fit and getting in shape and getting toned. But what you're asking is, for most dancers, is not a healthy outcome. And it's a mindfuck. Who decided this? Who decided, you know, that this, you have to have twig-like arms or legs? Did the skies open up and the ballet god said, this is how it has to be? No, it's just what we've all been programmed. I didn't understand that you're worthy because you're a human first, not because you're a dancer. Instead of having a full-time company job, Catherine's found another way to dance. She freelances as a soloist, teaches ballet, and coaches dancers. And when her videos came out in 2020, dancer after dancer told her they had similar experiences. Other dancers have also gone public, like a New York City ballet principal in an Instagram Live last year, or another soloist who wrote that Peter Martins pointed from her knee to her butt and said she didn't fit in from there to there. She'd struggled with bulimia, and she ended up getting liposuction on her thighs. And it's not just scrutiny from within the company. It's everywhere. Critics set the tone, too. For example, a dance critic at the New York Times mocked the weight of a principal dancer. In a review, after she'd been open about her eating disorder, he said she'd had one sugar plum too many. He defended himself afterward, 
He said, quote, Ballet demands sacrifice in its pursuit of widely accepted ideals of beauty. If you want to make your appearance irrelevant to criticism, do not choose ballet as a career. I am severe, but ballet, as dancers know, is more so. End quote. The idea that you aren't really a ballet dancer until you look like a ballet dancer is really pervasive. You know, if you are uncomfortable watching a person bigger than a standard ballet dancer do ballet, if it doesn't look right to you, that is something that you need to sit with and think about and think about why and think about the cost, the human cost, the physical, psychological, emotional cost of that kind of gatekeeping, of who doesn't get to dance, of who has to suffer in order to dance. It's so deep-seated, it's so harmful, and it's just completely unjustifiable. So often the idea of the line is talked about like this geometrical fact, like an artistic truth that can't be argued with. But the older I get, the more I question that. I start to think, yeah, I have been brainwashed. I've been so inundated with images of thin bodies dancing ballet that I eventually believed that that was objectively better on a gut level. I've been programmed to think certain bodies make lines that are more beautiful than others. That a flowing arm that curves is beautiful, but a curvy body is not. I don't believe that anymore. Because I've been working to deprogram myself for more than a decade. Is the idea of the line, I mean, how real is it even? I mean, is the line better? And my answer is, who cares? Because people are suffering. The audience having a good experience of ballet and enjoying what they see on stage is dependent on that line. And that line is dependent on people starving and people collapsing in the wings from exhaustion and people getting early onset osteoporosis and bone fractures and long-term musculoskeletal damage and anorexia and body dysmorphia and a permanently messed up relationship with food and with exercise and early retirement and the kind of disillusionment that a lot of former dancers feel. Who gives a shit about the line? Next time on The Turning. Imagine, as a Black ballet student at the time, hearing that that was the thought. A ballerina should be the color of a peeled apple. And I remember thinking, well, if you leave a peeled apple out on the counter for a minute, it turns brown anyway. So what does that mean? The Turning is a production of Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts. It's written and produced by Aylan Lance Lesser and me. Our story editor is Emily Foreman. Mixing and sound design by James Trout. Jessica Carissa is our assistant producer. Andrea Aswahe is our digital producer. 
fact-checking by Andrea Lopez-Crusado. Special thanks to Chloe Angel, who you heard from today. Her incredible book about the world of ballet is called Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself. Our executive producers are John Parati and Jessica Alpert at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor at iHeart Podcasts. For photos and more details on the series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. And you can reach out via email, theturning at rococopunch.com. I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.